Hello everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, a Cassus Belly project. In this episode, we finally start the U.S. Navy and Marine Corps' drive through the Central Pacific. The Southwest Pacific isn't quite wrapped yet, and we will return to it before long. And we won't really stay in the Central Pacific for very long either, before setting our sights elsewhere. But consider this a teaser almost for what is coming in 1944. I also want to touch on some terminology I'll be using regarding defensive works in this episode. Whether it's pillbox, blockhouse, or bunker, I'm describing defensive works made of concrete or logs made to house men, machine guns, and ammunition, and I use the terms more or less interchangeably. As always, if you have questions, comments, or corrections, you can contact me at cassisbellyguy at gmail.com. You can also visit the website at cassisbellypodcast.com slash worldwar2 with the number 2. I always appreciate feedback from listeners. Anyway, let's begin episode 44, The First Atoll. I have been astonished that Japan should in a single day have plunged into war against the United States and the British Empire. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them? until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget. November 1943, as the battle for Bougainville raged and MacArthur and Halsey continued to ram their way up the Solomons towards Rabaul, Nimitz was preparing to begin his career-defining drive through the Central Pacific. Rather than skirting the Pacific Rim in a series of major land operations, characterized by island jumps of tens to hundreds of miles, like MacArthur was doing, Nimitz had an entirely different approach. Much like the Southwest Pacific Theater, his campaign would involve seizing key islands for the sake of their airfields. Unlike the Southwest Pacific, however, where the islands were mostly tropical jungles and big enough to allow for large land maneuvers, the Central Pacific Islands were mostly coral atolls, tiny by any metric, making the battles for them tight, claustrophobic affairs with little room for maneuver. The first step would be to take footholds in the Gilbert Islands. Way at the periphery of the Japanese Empire, the Gilberts have been British colonial possessions, but were gradually conquered and consolidated by the Japanese between December 1941 and March 1943. Almost as soon as they had planted their flag on these minuscule spits of land, the Japanese began preparing their defenses. They began pouring concrete and sighted guns of all calibers, up to and including 8-inch coastal defense guns brought in from Singapore, along the expected avenues of approach, fortifying beaches against amphibious assault. By September 1943, the defenses were complete. Nearly all of the islands in the Gilbert's chain are atolls, meaning they are mostly low and flat, with a max elevation under 16 feet. Island vegetation consists mostly of coconut groves, screw pine, and scrub. This combination of coral, flat features, and easily cleared vegetation makes them ideal for constructing airfields. Hence, the airbase constructed on Batillo in the Teroa Atoll. They were a part of Admiral K.J. Shibasaki's Yogaki defense, meaning waylaying attack. 
The pillboxes and bunkers were only the final part of the defense in depth, which included four layers. The first layer utilized long-range bombers to disrupt American naval operations. Following that, short-range aircraft based in truck were meant to continue the aerial attack. The next layer committed Japanese surface vessels to direct action against the U.S. Pacific Fleet. And finally, the fourth layer, a swarm of submarines meant to overwhelm the American vessels. Only after defeating all of those methods would the defensive works manned by infantry be utilized to defeat the Americans at the waterline. Unfortunately for Admiral Shibasaki, the Americans had begun disrupting his defense in depth both directly and indirectly. Operations in the Upper Solomons drew off surface vessels, aircraft, and troops that he had been counting on to interdict the U.S. landing forces. Thanks to the landing at Bougainville, Halsey's audacious carrier strikes on Rabaul, and the Battle of Empress Augusta Bay, there was very little left to defend the Gilberts besides the men on the ground and some aircraft left at truck. The plane was directly opposed on September 19th when the carriers Lexington, Princeton, and Bellow Wood raided Tarawa, destroying tugboats needed to move water obstacles as well as aircraft parked on the airstrip. Three men named Smith would be responsible for seizing the Gilbert Islands. In overall command was Lieutenant General Holland Howland Mad Smith, United States Marine Corps, of the 5th Amphibious Corps. Subordinate to him, he had Major General Julian Smith, commander of the 2nd Marine Division, and Ralph Smith, commander of the 27th Infantry Division. They would not land troops on every island, however, only Macon and Tarawa Atolls. The Army would take the more lightly defended Macon Atoll, and the Marines the more heavily defended Tarawa Atoll, specifically the island of Batillo. Only light resistance was expected at Macon. Around 700 Japanese were garrisoned on the island. Tarawa, on the other hand, was much more heavily defended, with nearly 5,000 men and the defensive works to protect them, including dozens of coastal defense guns. Unfortunately, U.S. forces had very little idea of what to expect when they began planning the Gilbert's offensive and had to engage in extensive reconnaissance to develop the operational picture. This would also be the first time the U.S. military engaged in atoll warfare. Though the Department of the Navy had long theorized about the prospect and the Marines had considered it to be their raison d'etre, they had very little operational experience to draw on except lessons learned in the Solomons by the Army, Navy, and Marines. The lessons learned concerning amphibious operations were many, and included the following summarized and abridged. These are drawn from a document titled Movement of a Task Force by Small Landing Craft by Lieutenant Colonel E.S. Watson of the 43rd Infantry Division, written in the aftermath of their occupation of the Russell Islands. He writes, with some sense of humor, that these lessons were, quote, the product of careful study and in some cases trial and error. They may be of value, end quote. They are, one, Make preliminary practice landings and landings under conditions approximating the landing. 2. Aerial photographs are almost a necessity. 3. Every possible measure should be taken to determine the marine hazards of the destination. 4. A thorough and energetic supervision should be exercised over the handling of supplies and equipment. Apparently, the imminence of enemy contact is inversely proportionate to the consideration of property. G4s, Division Logistics Officers, have noticed that property will disappear. 5. At least 25% of all rations transported will be lost, largely through the effects of sea and weather. 6. Before a unit leaves the states, crates and boxes should be constructed for all impedimenta. This does not mean the usual hasty crate or carton. 
Sturdy reinforced boxes built by skilled technicians, reinforced with hardware, and furnished with carrying devices will pay their way many times. 7. In planning the forward movement of troops, retain enough in the rear base to handle the loading of the balance of cargo. Gradually work the rear troops forward as the labor requirements diminish. 8. Establish provisional labor companies for handling cargo as soon as the beachhead is established. Do not depend on intermittent details or the passenger troops. 9. Unload craft rapidly. Devote all energy to accomplishing the unloading and let the dispersion wait until the boats are clear. The boats are a more remunerative target than a pile of rations. 10. Use dim-colored lights at night for the LCTs to guide on as they approach the beach. 11. An artillery battery with three units of fire can be transported in two LCTs with prime movers and guns. 12. An infantry combat team with five units of fire, 15 days rations, can be transported in four destroyers and four LCTs. 13. One LCT will carry 175 tons of rations or 700 drums of gasoline. 14. Equipment to be loaded should be staged the night before the landing. 15. Be prepared for sudden changes of planes in the landing. Waves of troops will not always land where they should. Companies may become mixed, and the heavy weapons may not be there when they should be. Battalion commanders should be ready to make rapid reorganization of their strength without halting the forward movement. 16. Treasure your road net. 17. Coconut groves make good concealment for bivouac areas. 18. Americans have yet to learn how to deal with natives. They should be respected and ignored. Their villages should be put off limits, and their services secured only under exceptional circumstances, and then by an experienced representative. 19. The principles of combat are just the same as they ever were. The book is still right. Island warfare differs only in that your lines of communication for supply and evacuation are a little more precarious. So are the enemies. And finally, 20. Engineer road equipment should be in the first echelon to commence road building and road repair immediately. These lessons would be taken into account during the planning phase, but something still had to be done about the lack of intelligence. This was rectified through three primary means. The use of surveillance aircraft to take numerous photographs of the island, including landing areas, beaches, lagoons, reefs, channels, and the exact locations, type, and strength of defenses. The employment of submarines to take horizontal photos as well as obtain environmental data regarding surf, tides, wind, and currents. Lastly, 15 former British residents of the islands were found who could speak to the conditions of the islands. The extensive intelligence preparation of the battlefield yielded important operational results, one of which was the revelation that the seaward-facing defensive works were simply too significant for landings to be attempted from the open ocean, or southern-facing beaches. They would have to assault from the northern, lagoon-facing beaches. That is not to say the beaches were undefended, they were, and a solution was still needed to be able to penetrate the north-facing beachworks as well as navigate the shallow lagoon during low tide. They found their solution in amphibious tractors, commonly called Amtraks, or simply alligators. These amphibious tracked vehicles could get through the protective wire and log obstacles constructed by the defenders, as well as roll over coral outcroppings in the lagoon. Unfortunately, the 2nd Marine Division only had 75 at its disposal. So Howland Mad Smith went to bat for his men, returning to Washington to argue for more vehicles with Admiral Turner, commander of the 5th Amphibious Force. The Navy was reluctant to procure the Amtraks, but old Howland Mad gave him an ultimatum. No Amtraks, no operation. 
Shortly thereafter, 50 Amtraks were found available in San Diego to be transported to Samoa, where the landing force could pick them up en route to their invasion. The Japanese defense of Tarawa was described by one report as, quote, a small island addition of the German West Wall, with one extremely important difference, no depth, end quote. Japanese defensive doctrine and its outlying islands was centered around defeating the invading force at the waterline. Theoretically, this could be done in two ways. First, and most obviously, by conducting a perimeter defense around the entire coast. Obviously, this is not possible on larger islands, as was the case in most of the Solomon chain. In that case, Japanese doctrine called for a counterattack of the invading force like, quote, an electric shock at the proper moment to annihilate the enemy by close-range fire, by throwing hand grenades, and by hand-to-hand -hand combat, end quote. On Batillo, effectively every inch of coastline was defended by some sort of gun or bunker, allowing the Japanese to execute a perimeter defense. Every 25 to 50 yards in a line circling the island, the defenders constructed pillboxes roughly 50 yards from the waterline, supported by heavier batteries and bomb-proof shelters placed between them. However, they also maintained a decentralized mobile reserve in order to rapidly drive the invader back into the sea. Against the Japanese were arrayed the 18,600 men of the 2nd Marine Division, 10,000 of whom were slotted to land on Batillo. The remainder were held as the core reserve to land at either Macon or Batillo as operational needs emerged. In late October, 5th Amphibious Corps embarked from Wellington, New Zealand, under the auspices of a training exercise at Hawke's Bay, on the eastern side of the North Island. The deception was to prevent news of a large troop movement from garnering any surprise, and only the highest ranking officers in the invasion force knew it was a ruse. Soldiers and Marines told their sweethearts they would be back in a couple weeks, and even the government of New Zealand was fooled. The American force went through all of the movements of legitimately conducting an exercise, including hiring services to haul equipment to the training site. They just never showed up. Instead, they began sailing north toward Vanuatu, where the invasion force would gather and wait for the conditions at Batillo to be favorable, meaning when the tide would be high enough for the landing craft to get through, but also receding so that there would actually be a beach for the men to land on. November 20th was determined to be the ideal date for a landing, when those conditions would be met. So on the night of November 19th, the invasion force of three battleships, five cruisers, nine destroyers, and 17 troop and cargo supply ships was waiting to the west of Tarawa Atoll for the assault to begin. At the same time, the Macon invasion force was preparing to land troops at that island. The landings at Macon went about as smoothly as contested amphibious landings can go. The men of the 69th Infantry, 27th Infantry Division, landed on the north and west shores of Butaratari Island of Macon Atoll and met no resistance. Despite relatively light defenses, it took the 69th Infantry three days to fully secure the island and declare it taken, mostly because the troops were green and shaky. Just as happened in New Georgia, men who were untested in combat and unfamiliar with the terrain could be easily halted by relatively small defensive positions and spooked easily. This initial trepidation soon faded, however, and by the second day, the soldiers had seasoned a bit and were able to move more effectively to dig out the defenders. The army only suffered 66 men killed and 185 wounded. The great majority of the casualties sustained during the Macon operation occurred when a submarine attack on the USS Lanscombe Bay detonated the aircraft carrier's bomb storage area. The blast destroyed the rear third of the ship and killed more than 650 sailors almost instantly. This embittered the Navy, and Admiral Spruance felt that the inefficiency with which the Army took the island 
forced the Linscombe Bay to remain, and provided the Japanese submarine with the opportunity to launch the torpedo attack. Things would go quite differently at Tarawa. At 3.30 in the morning of November 20th, the sea bombardment of Batillo would begin. As the Marines descended the cargo nets into their landing vehicles, bellies full of the now traditional pre-battle meal of steak and eggs, the Japanese shore batteries began to open up. In response, the battleships and cruisers of the invasion force turned their main guns towards Batillo to engage in counter-battery fire. The USS Maryland managed to strike a munitions bunker for one of the 8-inch coastal batteries, killing hundreds and igniting an absolutely volcanic explosion. Before dawn, three of the island's four big coastal guns had been destroyed. Just about two hours after the artillery duel began, the guns of the invasion fleet went silent. The island glowed orange and smoke bellowed into the air. Silence fell over the seas in anticipation of the aerial assault that was to follow. Dozens of Avengers and Dauntless dive bombers descended on the island, destroying yet more Japanese defenses before heading back out over the horizon. By 6.10 in the morning, the aircraft had cleared and the shore bombardment could resume. This time, the battleships really let them have it. In each salvo, the battleships launched eight 16-inch armor-piercing shells weighing 1,500 pounds each at the island. For three hours, the ships lobbed shell after shell at Batillo. Despite this, much of the Japanese defenses remained intact. The marines turning toward the shore in their Amtraks would still face much resistance. To make matters worse, the water level didn't seem to be rising. Planers had expected five feet of water over the reef, but as the minutes ticked by, the water stayed low. A neap tide had struck. Something of an unusual hydrological phenomena where during certain conditions, high tide doesn't bring the normal amount of water with it. There would only be three feet of water over the lagoon, making traversing it much more difficult and force the marines to disembark and wade hundreds of yards to shore. The neap tide wasn't completely unforeseen. The old hands from the British colonial days had warned that a neap tide was likely, but the navy and marine planners had convinced themselves they would get the depth they needed in the lagoon. They were sorely mistaken, and the marines going ashore would pay the price. While the Amtraks chugged along toward the shore, navigating the coral outcroppings as best they could, the Japanese fired everything they could at them, from direct machine gun fire, to mortars, to larger artillery. The unarmored Amtraks could hardly withstand the Japanese fire, and many of them sputtered and burned out hundreds of yards from the beach, forcing the Marines to begin the slow wade to shore, from wherever they happened to stall out. Those Amtraks that did make it all the way to the shore, were generally so badly riddled with holes by Japanese small arms fire that they couldn't make it back to the landing ships to pick up more men. After the first wave made it ashore, the men were pinned on the beach waiting for more men to come. The problem was too many Amtraks had been destroyed, so there was nothing to carry the waiting marines to shore after the first three waves. So the men did what they had to do, and waited all the way from the lagoon edge to the beach, sometimes as far as half a mile. With half of their bodies exposed, these men proved easy targets for the Japanese, who could pick them off at their leisure as they waded in. By noon, a sizable number of Marines had gotten ashore, but the situation remained desperate. Colonel David Shoup did his best to organize the landing force and established a headquarters in the vicinity of the pier that jutted out into the water about halfway down the length of the landing beach. The Japanese had established firing points and machine gun nests all along the pier, so the Marines had to clear them out by fire before even turning their attention inward. Even then, 
The seawall was all that separated the opposing forces, who could be as close as 15 yards from one another, constantly exchanging fire and grenades. From his command post at the base of the pier, Shoup would organize the first assaults inland under these withering conditions, and for it, he would eventually be awarded the Medal of Honor. At 1.30 in the afternoon, knowing the outcome of the battle hung in the balance, General Julian Smith asked General Holland Smith to commit the Corps Reserve. The Corps commander agreed, making the 1st Battalion 8th Marines, who had been waiting in their boats since before dawn, immediately available. Several Stuart and Sherman tanks had also made it to shore, which helped the Marines establish their beachhead, but by nightfall, only one remained operational. As the sun set on November 20th, roughly 5,000 Marines had gone ashore, but only 3,500 of them were still combat effective. They had carved out two footholds, separated by about 600 yards, but which penetrated up to 250 yards inland, occupying part of the airfield. In other areas, the beachhead was much more precarious, pushing on a few yards up from the beach. Though their day's fighting had been hellish and deadly, those Marines that had made it ashore fought tenaciously, allowing them to penetrate so far beyond the seawall in some places. The men ashore began digging in where they were, knowing that when darkness fell, the Japanese would launch their characteristic counterattack. The expected counterattack? Never came, though. All through the night, the men waited, but only small, uncoordinated attacks came, and the occasional mortar round. During the initial bombardment, the island's telephone network had been knocked out, so Admiral Shibaseki had no way of coordinating with his subordinate headquarters. What runners he did send out were quickly picked off by Marines, who now had excellent observation in fields of fire over most of the island. While the Japanese did their best to put together ad hoc counterattacks, the invasion force did not simply rest and wait for morning. No. The Americans were busying themselves bringing up artillery and reserves while evacuating the dead and wounded. When dawn broke, the Marines' 75mm guns were on the beach and ready to start pounding Japanese positions. They would come in quite handy, because dawn also marked the start of raking Japanese machine gun fire emanating from blockhouses just inside the seawall. As men began wading in from the reef's edge, the terrible fire resumed, and the Marines ashore did everything they could to silence it. They tried indirect fire from their howitzers, which seemed to only dent the concrete. They tried calling in naval aviation to dive-bomb the bunkers, but that proved ineffective. Destroyers remained close to the reef edge to provide covering fire and suppression with their 5-inch guns, but even that didn't put an end to the Japanese fusillade. Eventually, they realized that only by directly closing and attacking by fire could they silence the Japanese guns. So that's what they did. If a pillbox was still firing after being pounded by artillery, naval gunfire, and aerial attack, the Marines had myriad options to neutralize it, including direct fire, flamethrowers, tanks, and bulldozers. The first option was to try and knock it out with one of the tanks. This sometimes worked, but more often than not simply chonked a big hole in the side of the concrete fortress. From the newly exposed hole, Marines could jet a stream of flame or lob in grenades and fire frantically inside. If that wasn't feasible, the next best thing was to close with the bunker, bring a couple of engineers, and toss in a few charges of TNT through the gun port or a ventilation shaft. Finally, if the bunker proved exceptionally well defended, one last option remained. The bulldozer. This was the fate of Admiral Shibasaki's command post. The dozer rolled in under a storm of covering fire, blade raised, to protect the driver from enemy fire, until it was close enough to begin its work. The operator would lower the blade and begin shoveling sand on top of the whole thing until it was buried. 
the Marines then poured gasoline and dropped grenades down the ventilation shafts for good measure. That was how the second day on Batillo was spent by the Marines, slowly and methodically clearing out bunkers, entrenchments, and pillboxes until the island had been cut in half. That day, 600 more Marines flowed onto the island, while 340 were killed or wounded attempting to cross the lagoon. Despite the casualties mounting in the lagoon and on the island, progress was being made. The third day would be characterized not by the ferocity of the second day, but by cold, systematic precision. The men fighting on Batillo now had two days of experience, a veritable lifetime in direct action against a determined enemy, and they knew their business well. Having split the island in twain the day before, the third day's objective was to eliminate the pocket. The 600-yard wide gap between the two halves of the American invasion force. It took the better part of the day, but eventually the pocket was reduced and the Marines could go into the final day with only the tail, or eastern end of the island, remaining in enemy hands. The night between the third and fourth days, the Japanese made their expected bonsai charges, but they had little effect and were repulsed. The following dawn, naval aviators swooped down to bombard the remaining Japanese positions before fresh troops were committed to mopping them up. The 3rd Battalion, 6th Marines, with the tanks Colorado and China Gal, pushed forward in a crackling of gunfire, getting 150 yards in under an hour. The Japanese resistance was breaking, and by 1 o'clock in the afternoon, Batillo, and essentially all of the Tarawa Atoll, was in American hands. Admiral Shibasaki had proclaimed that a million men couldn't take the island in a hundred years. General Smith did it in three and a half days with 10,000. The Battle of Tarawa, as it's commonly referred to, was a bloody and somewhat scandalous affair. A thousand Americans died, and 2,000 more were wounded in the invasion, for 4,690 Japanese killed. Days after the battle ended, pictures of dead Americans floating in the surf were published in newspapers across the country. Why had so many young men died to take this minuscule spit of land in the middle of the ocean? The high casualties wound up being fodder for the Army-Navy inter-service rivalry and for General MacArthur's political posturing. MacArthur and his surrogates were able to use the dead to bludgeon the Navy and lobby for full operational command of the Pacific Theater. Of course, those in the halls of power knew MacArthur's argument was bunk. They had seen how he handled the new Georgia campaign and knew he was no mastermind and saw the posturing for what it was. There were, of course, lessons to be learned from the first amphibious invasion of an atoll that would save lives in future operations. Among them were communications and joint fires coordination elements called Joint Assault Signal Companies, or JASCOs. Their purpose was to come ashore after the initial landings to coordinate naval gunfire, close air support, and coordinate beachhead communications. They also helped beachmasters coordinate unloading cargo and directing shore parties. On the flip side, new command ships were designed specifically to have the equipment needed to coordinate a land battle from the sea rather than using ad hoc headquarters aboard battleships. Loading techniques were further refined as well. The Navy and Marines determined that, rather than loading all of one item in one location on an LST, items should be layered together so that if there was a sudden demand for, say, extra fuel oil, they wouldn't have to unpack a whole LST's worth of rations, ammunition, and lubricants to get it. Improvements in equipment were made to reflect the challenges faced on Tarawa as well. Exact replicas of the defenses constructed on Batillo were constructed at firing ranges in Hawaii, where different techniques were tested against them to see what was most effective. These results informed the designs of new hardware that would be constructed to send back out to the force, including amphibious tanks and flamethrower tanks. 
an amphibious truck was developed to help ferry troops and supplies ashore when not under direct fire. A new innovation, if not a new piece of hardware, was the use of the landing ship dock to carry LSTs already loaded with tanks as close to the landing zone as possible, saving time and reducing logistical strain in the immediate run-up to the battle. The biggest lesson from Terra, though, wasn't in new methods for destroying pillboxes or improved landing techniques. It was the need for naval commanders to take land commanders' requests seriously. Had Admiral Turner listened to General Julian Smith and taken him seriously when he requested additional Amtraks, hundreds of Marines' lives could have been saved. Had Turner released all 100 Amtraks instead of only 50, there may well have been vehicles to take men ashore after the first waves. Most of the Marines who were killed died while wading in from the reef edge. If there had been 50 more Amtraks present at the battle, many of them may well have been able to ride to shore rather than wade. I understand Admiral Turner's predicament. The additional Amtraks would have had to have been loaded and transported on LSTs, which are slow and lumbering vessels. In order for the LSTs carrying the Amtraks to arrive on time for the invasion, they would have to leave before the main body, and thus increase exposure to Japanese pickets. He worried this would alert the Japanese to the invasion force sooner, or expose the LSTs themselves to bombardment. This is obviously a reasonable argument, but it would counter that the needs of the invasion force should come first. In this instance, I would argue that the risk was worth it. Reasonable people could draw different conclusions, however. Regardless, Tarawa had fallen and the Gilbert Islands were essentially in Allied hands by the end of November 1943. The Marshals were next in the docket for Admiral Nimitz, beginning with Kwajalein in early 1944. The Empire of Japan and its Pacific Thalassocracy was beginning to crumble. The Solomon Islands were lost, and the first outlying island in the Central Pacific had been knocked off. Even if they didn't see it yet, the writing was on the wall for the Empire of Japan. At this point, defeat was inevitable.